0: The Larb Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radiohour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co host, Eric Newman.
1: Hi, Kate.
0: Hi, Eric. And this week we have a conversation with the philosopher Kohei Saito about his book, Slow Down, the Degrowth Manifesto, which was released in Japan last year and was just released in the States this year.
1: Yeah, you know, as we've been talking with each other since recording this interview, I think Dr. Saito's book and the conversation that we had has really been sticking with us. You know, like, I keep thinking about how, you know, the book opens up the urgency, which should be lost on probably none of our listeners, the urgency of the environmental crisis and the climate crisis and the global economic crisis that we kind of feel ourselves acutely to be in. And this was both like a pretty searing indictment of where we are and also a really interesting packaging of where we need to be and really highlighting the problem with consumption, which I think is something that we, especially in an American context, we tend not to think about. We're more like, oh, what cool new product could I buy (laughs) that could somehow help the planet, but also mostly just something that I could buy?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the kind of techno-optimism of... The Green New Deal and Mm -hmm. all electric cars and touting around your water bottle with you are kind of blown to bits here. Yeah. In a way that I think you and I were saying before we started recording, there's an intuitive way we've both felt like, huh, I'm not sure if, you know, replacing all the cars with electric cars is really going to solve the whole problem. Of course, that is great, but there seems to be something deeper in terms of how our economy is structured. That is um part of the the issue and that's what needs to be altered and that that's what this book is really looking at. What if we did not grow the GDP anymore as our main aim and focused on other things and gave you know basic needs like education and healthcare for free? Yeah, I mean, and I think
1: this is also very much in the writing itself. But there's, I think probably, especially in the West, like a knee-jerk reaction because much of what Kohei Saito is drawing inspiration from is communism or at least like what he wants to do with Marx's revamped or a kind of re-envisioned exploration of Marx's vision for communism. And I think it would be easy to say, oh, well, that didn't work. And this is just another kind of like capitalism versus communism thing, except that as we've been talking about too, he gets at the consumption and the growth problem at the heart of capitalism, basically that in order for capitalism to function, we have to constantly see growth, we have to constantly see more development, and that is actually something that just takes a lot of resources that we increasingly have less and less of. So it was like, you know, I know both of us were kind of talking about this, that it made that critique of capitalism kind of click a little bit in that it has like a a purchase on the core engine of capitalism that is a problem for our kind of like climate troubled age.
0: You're right. And, and I would, you know, have, have had this thought before that it's like capitalism will outlast the earth. You know, yeah, that things, probably, will be, sadly, things will be yeah. um, falling to bits and it will still be going. So I did find this book very urgent. And also, I, I loved towards the end of the conversation when Kohei Saito said that we're already practicing communism. Now, in the way that we take care of family members, friends, we make food for our children and we don't ask uh, for money in exchange. I thought that was uh, bunch a bunch of a, freeloaders. <laughs> a good way to think about it. I'm glad to know that, yes, so with my son, I'm actually practicing communism every day and spades. <laughs> makes me feel better about what I'm doing. So um, it was a really, really stimulating, conversation. And as much as I also wondered at times reading this book, like, oh, I want this to happen. But where is the political will when we can't even decide on, you know, universal health care in this country? I was then also heartened that this book has done so well in Japan and is a bestseller there, sold half a million copies already. So at least uh, somewhere is getting it, hopefully.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like we've been saying, like this conversation and this book have stuck with us for weeks. So hopefully that will also be true for our listeners and all the readers.
0: Well, let's get to it.
1: All right, let's do it. We're excited to have Dr. Kohei Saito with us on the line today. Kohei is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Tokyo whose work focuses on the intersections of economic and ecological theory. He is the author of Karl Marx's Eco-socialism, Capital, Nature, and the Unfinished Critique of Political Economy, and joins us today to discuss his latest book, Slow Down, The Degrowth Manifesto. It's an English translation of his 2020 book, Capital in the Anthropocene, that has sold like gangbusters in Japan. In Slowdown, Dr. Saito draws on his prior work to critique what he sees as our insufficient responses to the climate crisis that more and more of our world is feeling as temperatures and sea levels rise in ways that many of us can no longer escape noticing. Slowdown aptly points to capitalism, both its race for profits and its endlessly expansive production, as the chief cause of our present crisis but the cure is not a green capitalism like what we might see in the proposals for a green new deal here in the united states but rather degrowth which is a complicated new vision for reorganizing labor production and consumption in ways that Saito and others argue is the only sustainable way forward drawing on previously unpublished work by economic philosopher karl marx kohe argues that degrowth may help thread the needle between the horrors of soviet style communism and the insufficiency of a green Keynesianism or techno-optimism to help foster a world and community in which we all can thrive. Welcome to the show, Dr. Saito. We're grateful to be speaking with you today. I'm most excited. Thank you.
0: I just wanted to start with you explaining what degrowth communism is in the plainest terms possible. Like if you were seeing someone on the street who didn't know anything about Karl Marx and They asked you what it was. I was wondering how you would explain it to them. And also just a little bit of what would it look like in the world? What does it look like in practice?
2: Okay, so degrowth is often misunderstood. And degrowth is a little bit ambiguous term. So people have different understanding. Some people might think this is a kind of austerity, giving up all the technologies and going back to nature. No, that's not the case. Degrowth is a simple idea. Our society, which is capitalism, is characterized by constant economic growth and profit making, and GDP is the only measure of our progress. Degrowth basically calls for abandoning GDP as the measure of progress, and we try to focus more on well-being, sustainability, and equity, so other things that are not necessarily reflected in GDP. Degrowth is also about planned reduction of unnecessary things because the current ecological catastrophe is basically caused by this constant expansion of our economic system that is also accompanied by production of many unnecessary things. So what happens if we abandon GDP? The capitalism thinks that we can be all affluent and we can live in a better life by uh, seeking after constant economic growth. But the problem is once we abandon economic progress, we need to share more. And I think degrowth capitalism is contradictory and we need some kind of degrowth post-capitalism. And since we give up uh, the constant expansion of our economy, we need to share more. And here is why I advocate the necessity of bringing Karl Marx back because the idea of sharing and helping each other for the sake of equity, sustainability, and justice. So the basic idea of communism is not about Soviet-style bureaucracy and uh, uh, kind of austerity and uh, undemocratic rule. It is about sharing and helping each other in This is a kind of a new way of creating an abundant life that is very different from the consumptionist way of life currently existing
1: under capitalism. I want to back up just a little bit because I think that in the early part of your book, you kind of outline why what you call Green Keynesianism, which is also kind of you cite the Green New Deal, why that won't work. And I found a number of your reasons why they're intuitively true right which is that so okay great let's all transition to solar energy sounds wonderful except that you know solar panels actually take cobalt and a bunch of rare earth metals to produce and the only way we have to get them the resource extraction isn't solar powered so we actually as you have said we would burn more carbon creating these more sustainable things But I thought it was also interesting, your point about the preservation of capitalism's growth mantra inside of Green Keynesianism. And I wonder if you could just, if you could explain a little bit for our listeners why that would not work. Because I think a lot of people, especially in the US on the left, are very invested in the idea of a Green New Deal, which sounds good in theory, but as you reveal in practice, is not going to be a solution.
2: Yes, because I think if we started 30 years ago, it would be enough to invest in renewable energy and electric vehicles and these kind of technology can sustain some kind of green economic growth while at the same time reducing carbon emission rapid enough. But the problem is now we have lost this precious time of 30 years by our inaction and the time is limited quite limited. So the problem is in the last 30 years, decoupling of GDP and energy and resource consumption is not taking place. It took place to some extent, but it is not rapid enough. And the problem is we have to, if we really try to achieve that 1.5 degree Celsius target, which is the one of the goals of the Paris Agreement, we have to cut the carbon emission by half by around 2030. And we also have to achieve the net zero emission by 2050. So we really have to make a radical transition to a decarbonized economy in next decades or so. So the problem of capitalist growth is basically there is a more tendency to use energy and other resources for the sake of making more profit. And as I said, which is often characterized by unnecessary production. For example, we have, of course, a lot of kind of efficiency improvement in terms of electric vehicles and other renewable energies. But at the same time, we are also producing more number of cars. We are also producing bigger cars. And these tendencies basically cancels out the efficiency improvement. So what we are trying to do is actually not really bringing the sufficient progress. The problem is that, of course, electric vehicles is better for the environment compared to the old cars, but they still use an incredible amount of energy and resource. And this basic problem applies to other new green technologies. So what I'm advocating as a kind of degrowth proposal is basically okay, we need to invest in those new green technologies. But at the same time, it is high time. It is necessary to discuss the necessity to reduce the number of cars. So in order to do this, we also have to talking about investing in public transportation. And we also talk about more new kind of mobility system that is based on bicycles and public transportation and other kind of system that is not simply driven by a gigantic auto industry.
0: You also, in talking about the rare metals that go into electric cars, you mentioned kind of extraction models of capitalism and the effects they have on the global south. So it seems like the book is, it's very much in the context of the climate crisis, but it doesn't distinguish that crisis from matters of global equity. And this importance of all these things that are happening in the global South that make the lives of the global North possible and the kind of affluence of the global North possible. And then going back around to the arguments now that are emerging about what's fair in terms of energy consumption and the kind of growing economies in the global South and how they should be allowed to grow even as their emissions increase and, you know, if they don't cut emissions, it won't help us reach these climate accords in time. So how do you how do you conceive of what's fair in terms of the growth of these countries that have been exploited for so long?
2: Yeah, the growth is often misunderstood as demanding the global south to remain poor. That's not the case. So the degrowth is basically limited to the global north because this excessive development is not something that we can make it sustainable even with the use of future technologies. And on the other hand, it is obvious that in order to satisfy the basic social needs, it is quite necessary for the countries in the global South to develop more. So again, the degrowth is basically for the global North and the global South should achieve some kind of economic development. So that I want to clarify first. But the problem with the Green New Deal and the other kind of the proposal for green capitalism is basically it could make global north more sustainable, but at the cost of global south. Why? Because all the electric vehicles and renewable energies and the other biomass energy and so on require massive amount of resources and energies that are often located in the global south. So what would happen is for the sake of making America or Japan and the EU countries more sustainable, the resources and lands and energy and are exploited for the sake of the global north. And also the cheap labor is exploited for the sake of global north. And indigenous life, ecological system would be destroyed. So these kind of things are not justified, right? So what actually is hidden under the beautiful description of the future green progress and the economic growth is actually the more exploitation and uh, destruction that has been characterized in the history of capitalism. And I think it is high time to radically change and we have to face uh, the continuing injustice and kind of exploitation that is at the basis of our affluent system. And unless we really face this fundamental contradiction, the contradiction that our affluent life in the global north is characterized by the puberty and exploitation in the global south, any kind of proposal, left or right or deglos, socialists, liberals, whatsoever, are
1: all destined to fail. I wanted to talk about this issue because this is like, as I see it, I mean, degrowth is also entailing a number of massive and radical changes to both production, labor, and the organization of, of social life. But at least one of the biggest things that I think about here in the United States in our domestic context is that you have to get people to realize exactly what you're talking about. This, like, that, the luxuries, even if you may not think of them as luxuries, your average daily life is supported by the, as you use in Marxist terms, the externalization of extraction to other places, right? So we don't see the effects of, you know, our DoorDash order or things like that or, or whatever. But what it sounds like degrowth has to mean is a transition, and you kind of suggest this towards the end of the book as you talk about the kind of pillars of degrowth. And one of them is to be transitioning from the production of value, so of objects that are worth things, usually money, to the production of use value, items that have, and that's a classic Marxist distinction between like items that just are valuable because of their circulation in the market versus items that have an actual value, like a table that you need to do work upon or a screwdriver that you need in order to assemble something. It just strikes me that especially in the West, but also in the global North, we have gotten used to a culture of customization and rapid consumption. And I'm curious, do you see a generational shift in younger people maybe being more interested in reducing their own consumption? Or how can we get over that major cultural and psychological hurdle that will be necessary, even if it's not degrowth, it's going to be necessary for how we're going to live through the coming climate crisis and its effects?
2: I think it is totally understandable that the younger generations are more attracted to the idea of degrowth and socialism because they are more exposed to the risk of climate crisis, but they are also not profiting from the current status quo of business as usual of capitalism. For example, wage is stagnating, job is unstable and precarious, and social welfare is cut due to neoliberal reforms in the last decades. And especially in America, the tuition is very high, so students are suffering from the high debt. And so the problem is the current neoliberal reforms brought some wealth to a very limited kind of people. So the rich people might have become richer, but That did not bring about any trickle-down. Wealth is simply concentrated in the hands of the few. And super-rich people are responsible for the large amount of carbon emission because their luxurious life is quite heavily impacting in terms of environment. So in that case, it is quite understandable that radical ideas such as degrowth and socialism appear to be a kind of the new political choice that is worth considering this emergency state of the planet. And I'm hoping that this kind of discussion would take place in the U.S. during the presidential election this year. So my understanding is as long as we try to pursue a kind of economic growth and consumptionist abundance, it is no way possible to achieve a kind of sustainable life on the planetary scale. If everyone on this planet try to live like American people, there's no way that (laughs) uh, this system becomes uh, sustainable. So I think what I can do as a philosopher is to redefine the concept of abundance, to redefine the concept of affluence, to redefine the concept of prosperity, because all those concepts today are characterized by more money, more growth, more consumption of cars and houses and air conditioners and so on. But we can redefine the concept of abundance in the following manner. Actually, capitalism is characterized by scarcity. One may start thinking in this way. Because if we want to have a kind of education, we have to pay such a high tuition. If we want to get medical care, You have to pay a very high fee again. So all those basic needs for living is actually made scarce under capitalism because of commodification, because you need to pay for everything. You pay high rent for housing, high fee for electricity, high fee for water, medical service, tuition, and so on and so on. Once we somehow make these basic services and goods for free, making the common goods. Tuition becomes free. So education is free. We have free public transportation, free internet, and free medical care. That's not a dream. You know, if you look at the Scandinavian countries or Germany and those countries, these things are almost free. So this is not a utopian story. That's somehow possible. And America is obviously much richer. The GDP is much higher. So it is theoretically possible to make tuitions and medical care and all those kind of things that are common public goods and accessible to everyone. And then there emerges a new kind of abundance. We feel secured because we have a free access to all the basic needs that we can satisfy. We still may have to pay for an iPhone. We may still have to pay for the cars and something that are not necessarily in order to live. Then we have much better life is possible. We may have, uh, everyone has a better understanding of the world, understanding of politics, and everyone has a much better well-being because they feel secure, less stress, and they could spend more time with family, friends, and they spend their energy and time for the sake of community and helping each other and so on. And these kind of abundance of public goods is what Marx demanded as a basis of communism. So this is basically misunderstand. No one really thought about this kind of basic transition is something very fundamental for making a better future, including Marx's idea of communism. But if you look at today's capitalism, it is quite clear, everything is commodified. This is why it's called capitalism. Everything is for the sake of capitalist growth. But Communism, which I advocate in my own sense, degrowth communism is about making those public goods abundant as a commonwealth. So the society based on the commonwealth is communism. And then once we have abundance of basic goods and services, we don't necessarily have to seek after constant economic growth. And one more thing is radical abundance of education, medical care, public transportation are also environmentally friendly, much more friendly, much more sustainable. Abundance of cultural activity doesn't harm planet. It's better for our life, culture, and this earth. So I think this transition from the consumptionist idea of abundance of commodities and money to the radical abundance of public services and goods is the basis of degrowth communism.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Kohei Saito, author of Slow Down. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Alicia Kennedy on the line. Alicia Kennedy is a writer and critic, and her new book is called No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. And she's here with the book rec.
3: My book recommendation is Feeding Fascism by Diana Garvin, which is a ostensibly academic and scholarly food studies book about women's work and the food culture under fascism in Italy. But is also really interesting for helping to think through these questions of what food is to us and what it can look like and mean under different systems, different political economies. So I think her book, I've read many books about different nations and their, their political, economic food relationships. But I think that Diana Garvin's book is really readable and really interesting. And because it focuses on women's labor, is also so prescient and and ever relevant.
0: Wow. So what did people eat under fascism in Italy?
3: It's interesting because it's always going to be about how people were cooking to serve the state, but also to subvert the state. And so, you know, how what had to be eaten in a way that was demonstrating the strength and virulence of the Italian state in this system and also what people were eating in a way to to assert their personal taste and their personal needs. An interesting companion to this book would be National Dish by Anya von Bremsen, which looks at how national dishes throughout the world have been constructed. Like the ways that we think pizza is so tied to Napoli or white rice is so tied to Japan— You know, how are the political systems and the cultural needs of those places or the powerful in those places serve to construct those national dishes?
0: Ooh, both of those sound amazing. I like to be elucidated on myths that I've long held. Like, yes, that (laughs) pizza is somehow uh, so important to Napoli. I want to learn how I'm wrong. Can you tell me the titles of those two books and the authors one more time?
3: Feeding Fascism, the Politics of Women's Food Work is by Diana Garvin. And National Dish Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home is by Anya von Bremsen.
0: Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you. That was Alicia Kennedy. Her new book is called No Meat Required. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kohei Saito, author of Slow Down. The ideas in your book make so much sense. They sound to me the way that I wish the world was living in the U.S., especially even just those basic social services you mentioned. Like, any of those would be great. But I think that Probably for people in the US, because of the current political discourse, which is so dumbed down, it seems the idea that that this would be implemented seems hard to imagine. So, in the meantime, people kind of soothe themselves with this fallacy of their individual lifestyles being more sustainable, which is kind of what you reference in this whole greenwashing. But I think it could even go beyond that and thinking, okay, well, these. The ideals that you describe, these are my ideals and this is how I will live my life. But if you live in the U.S., you're implicated in its practices. You're implicated in the global north. So it made me wonder about what is the place of the individual, you know, in all of this. If, if we're so wanting this change, if we believe that the earth is more important than, you know, economic growth, where do we even begin? And should what we be doing is being out in the streets, protesting? Should we be running for office? Where do you see the the responsibility of the individual in this?
2: Yeah, when I talk about the importance of the global South, the importance of climate justice, the importance of the planet, many people in the global North, especially the affluent people, feel, okay, so do I have to sacrifice my life? Do I have to give up all those things that I enjoy and so on? But at the same time, of course, it's true that we cannot consume this much. This is excessive. So we have to rethink about uh, other people and future generations and other non-human beings and so on. All those things are true. But at the same time, we should question a little bit whether we are really happy and whether we are really free. We are actually compelled to work harder, at the cost of time with friends and family, at the cost of our personal dreams and hobbies. And we are actually compelled to consume for those stupid items. And we don't feel happy because of the continuous competition with other colleagues and other companies and so on. And this system in capitalism is not making... Many of us, even in Japan and the U.S., happy. Rather, even you look at the United States, the richest country in the world, the happiness is not so high. Many people feel alienated and the suicide rate is high. And many people are addicted to drugs and, uh, you know, the health system. is.
0: The death rate is incredibly high in the U.S. too.
2: Death rate is incredibly high during the pandemic. So many people died in the United States compared to other countries. This is crazy. So it actually, a lot of GDP is actually wasted because other countries with lower GDP is protecting people's life and realizing some kind of happiness in a much efficient way. So the current system in the U.S. is characterized by wasted GDP. And That's why I I think understandable that especially the younger generation in facing the climate crisis and jobs insecurities and so on are interested in new ideas. And still, not everyone. Some people still like consuming fast fashion and so on. But The new generations are interested in something very different, different way of life, different way of spending their time and energy for better society. And here's a number suggested by Erika Chenoweth, 3.5%. Erika Chenoweth, a professor of politics at Harvard University, did a research in a different kind of big social changes in the world. And... Erika Chenoweth realized that actually only 3.5% participated in this kind of social transformation. If a small number of people devote their energy and time to a radical transformation of society, change is actually possible. So even in the United States, I think that if the number of people demanding of the radical s- social change reaches 3.5%, I think something very different could happen. And I think my book, I hope that my book will become some kind of inspiration for those people who are looking for something different from today's world. Because it's very hard as an individual to imagine a different kind of future and act for that kind of better life. But we can begin by reading books, getting some inspiration from it, and especially people like Karl Marx, why is he important today? Because many people think he's outdated, but he's one of the few philosophers who really questioned the legitimacy of capitalism and tried to imagine something very different. And this kind of political imaginary is something that we we really need today. And by looking at Karl Marx's text from a new perspective, I think we can regain that kind of imagination and creativity and talk about this kind of new idea with some family and friends and so on. And if the number reaches to the 3.5%, I believe that a very radical change could occur in next decades.
0: Well, I hope so because the, the timeline that you offer here seems very narrow, different maybe than what the Paris climate agreement Projects. Um, if we're shooting for 2030, we need to get a move on.
2: Exactly. One thing. One optimistic uh, evidence for rapid change is that Japan is a very conservative society. But my book "Slow Down" was published three years ago, and it sold half million copies. Uh, the book about degrowth, the book about Karl Marx and socialism, sold half million copies. Why? because the Japanese economy has been stagnating for three decades, and people actually came to realize that Japan is no longer growing as fast as it used to. And we did many reforms, but it only increased inequality. It only increased precarious, unstable jobs. So, people became actually unhappier during the reform, seeking after economic growth. So they started for looking at something different. And my book was published during the pandemic in the moment of a crisis. And the moment of a crisis is actually, of course, very dangerous and bad, but at the same time, creating the room of new possibilities, new possibilities that are usually neglected and ignored But in the moment of crisis, we try something new because we have to. And the climate crisis is much bigger and chronic emergency compared to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think in the coming decades, we will have more worse things, unfortunately. But at the same time, in this moment of chronic emergency, we will have possibilities of introducing some radical ideas, and that
1: might open up a very different kind of future. So we shouldn't give up. I like that. Yes, I think that one of the things that I found most most helpful about your book is that you maintain, even as you're talking about quite dire circumstances, you maintain a kind of, I want to be careful about saying optimism, but it's like there's definitely like a hope that we still have the time to make changes that are in fact possible. One of the things that I kind of wanted to add to this conversation is, and the situation in Japan had actually gotten me thinking about it as I was reading your book is whether or not degrowth, which you describe throughout the book as largely decreasing and transforming the modes and relationships of production, doesn't also necessitate possibly depopulation. That may not be exactly the right word, but whether or not degrowth also has to not just go into the reproduction of labor, but into the reproduction of people. So, for example, in Japan, as you're well aware, there is, and it's happening, it's concentrated in Japan, but it's truly happening here in the U.S. and elsewhere as well, is that younger generations are not having children to kind of replace, quote-unquote, and or support aging generations. And a lot of that has to do with the climate inflected impacts on the economy that things are, people are waiting to have children longer, they may not have them either for ethical reasons or because they simply don't have enough money or the guarantee or comfort that they will have enough money to support these children in the future. So I'm curious if like, as we're thinking about degrowth from a production standpoint, do we also need to start reimagining what a family looks like, let's say?
2: Yeah, some people sometimes misunderstand that environmental problems today are basically caused by the existence of too many people. So we have to cut the number of people and the humans are basically too many and that's the main cause of climate crisis and so on. I wouldn't necessarily agree, but this is a very neo-Malthusian idea. And if you look at actually the countries that are population is increasing is countries in like Africa... And their environmental impact is actually much smaller compared to the countries in the global north. So the problem is actually not necessarily the population. Rather, as I characterize in my book, this kind of the excessive, uh, luxurious life in the global north. So talking about population alone is actually hiding this economic uh, historical system issue. If you look at the global North countries, especially like Japan, the population is no longer growing. And that also means that it is much harder to achieve economic growth in the future. So that is why I think in the aging society, we need to have a very different kind of economic system that is not based on the idea of economic growth. And this is also the chance for degrowth because... Why was economic growth necessary in the 20th century? Because the population was growing. When the population is growing, we need a bigger pie for everyone. But when the population is shrinking now, we don't necessarily have to constantly grow because we could simply share what is already existent in today's society. So in a sense, not only Japan, but other developed countries in the global north, the population number is starting to decrease. So I actually advocate to my Japanese audience that Japan can present a new model of development because Japan is the kind of the future model for other countries. So if we make a fast transition to a steady state degrowth kind of economy in a successful manner, we can export that kind of model transition to other countries. For example, Japan is no longer growing in terms of GDP, but we have decent education system, the environment, the air is clean, the social security system is still functioning fine, society itself is very safe, we have good food, we have good uh Culture and so on, and these are the things that are not necessarily reflected in the GDP. So once we actually create a new kind of measure that can assess sustainability, that can assess well-being, that can assess equity, and so on, Japan could achieve a higher ranking in this kind of new measuring system. So I think it is really the time to abandon GDP as a single measure of progress, and we should focus more on things that actually the younger generation would be interested in. So that might be more stable jobs, the better environment, and then maybe it's possible that they will again start interested in also having babies. So the population issue will be connected to the issue of sustainability and issue of education system, issue of jobs and so on. That. So I think we need to have a more comprehensive vision of a transition to a society that is not based on constant economic growth.
0: It makes me think when we're talking about an older population about, you mentioned, you know, labor basically as going to be the the pillars that will uphold degrowth communism. And that's how you end the book, going through these pillars of labor and something that you mention is care workers because who will be taking care of the elderly and the sick? You know, it's care workers if it's not family. And I'm curious, and you know, that's a, clearly if you're inspired by Marx, you have to address labor. Maybe you could talk about these pillars that you, you mentioned at the end of the book.
2: What we learned during the pandemic is our society didn't pay enough attention to one of the most central activities, which is care. Because capitalism is actually exploiting from humans, and obviously the system that exploits from humans also exploits from nature. And all the caring activities, caring other people, caring yourself, caring nature, and caring future generations. All these kind of thinking and all those kind of activities have been marginalized and neglected and underinvested and underdeveloped. So the new system must be based on activity of caring, which includes, obviously, as you said, caring elderly people, but also caring children and caring nature. And these are the things that are, quite sustainable. So I think we need to invest, redistribute the wealth from those polluting industries to those caring industries. But at the same time, not all the caring activities must be commodified. So we have a lot of different kind of activities at home and at the you know communities, we have different kinds of caring activities that are not commodified and that should not be commodified. But we should pay more attention to this kind of caring activity is already realizing a kind of communism. Because we don't demand we cook for our children. We don't demand our children to pay for it. (laughs) We don't demand our friends to pay for, you know, helping to move from one house to another. We just simply help each other. And this is basic communism. Even our capitalist system is based on communism, some kind of communism. Because if everyone is demanding money for each single kind of activities, society doesn't function. The problem is the realm of that kind of communism is already undermined. But the hope is that still exists. So we should pay more attention to remaining sphere of communism And we should start thinking how that sphere could be expanded. So I'm not talking about kind of the immediate revolution and making this entire system, capitalist system collapse. I'm more talking about expanding the existing sphere of commonwealth. Why don't we make all the transportation, education, and medical care free public common goods? But we also should expand the sphere of caring activities, the mutual aid, Within family, with your friendship, with your people in neighborhood communities and so on. And with this kind of constant expansion of caring, mutual aid and commonwealth, we will have a much better future that is not necessarily characterized as capitalism anymore.
1: Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up. That is like the perfect message. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Dr. Kohe Saito, author most recently of Slow Down, the Degrowth Manifesto. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please. Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.